Oh, greetings, Mapper friends. Uh, here we are again, continuing our series on the book of Acts. We're up to Acts chapter 21. So we've got to work our way through to chapter 28. So a few weeks to go. But uh, let's uh, do some serious thinking about Acts 21 and we'll start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us today to uh, read well, to listen well. Uh, we pray that you would help us to take to heart these things that by your Holy Spirit you caused your servant Luke to write down in a careful and organised way. And we pray that you would help us to accept the challenges that come from this part of your word and help us to embrace them and, and live according to uh, these things that we discover together. In Jesus' name, amen. What, what drives you? What, uh, what motivations do you live by? What causes you to get out of bed in the morning? Do you have principles that you wouldn't shirk from, things that uh, organise your system of morality and uh, things that you wouldn't uh, depart from at all? I don't know if you're aware of it, but there is a, a term, uh, conviction politicians. Um, it uh, might be a bit of a surprise to some of you, but I looked it up on Google. I had heard it somewhere. And there's a Wikipedia page, and on that Wikipedia page, the illustration is of the former US President Ronald Reagan and the former British Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher. They are reckoned to be conviction politicians. Maggie Thatcher once described herself as being a conviction politician, not a consensus politician. So what that means is they're driven by the things that they believe to be true, not by popularity. So they made their policies according to what they think was most helpful for people, even if it wasn't always judged by the people themselves in that same way. Well, Groucho Marx was, of course, a very famous uh, American comedian, a member of the, uh, the Marx Brothers comedy group that made lots and lots of movies and things. He was a man who was, who was gifted with the art of the quip. And at one stage he said, these are my principles. And if you don't like them, well, I have others. And I think a lot of politicians operate according to the Groucho Marx principle. But John Howard, of course, was Australia's Prime Minister and serving alongside him was uh, John Anderson, who was at that time the leader of the National Party and therefore the Deputy Prime Minister in a coalition government. But back in 2005, John Anderson uh, responded to some serious health challenges that he was facing and the idea that he was spending too much time away from his family in country New South Wales. And so he announced his resignation from Parliament. And there were a number of speeches made in the House that day uh, in his honour, including the first from John Howard, who described him as being, he says, I have not met a person with greater integrity in public life. Integrity means things hold together. In other words, what you believe is how you behave. Howard, Mr Howard said that John Anderson was the person of the most integrity that he had ever met. Christians are meant to be people of integrity and of course John Anderson has uh, been a public Christian for a long time. But what should drive a Christian? What are the principles, what are the motivations that should drive a Christian? Well Luke nine twenty three to 25 we have the words of Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose or loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus says the right profile, the right conviction to have for a person who wants to be a Christian, one of his followers, is to follow him. Uh, Jesus went to the cross. I remember some years ago it was fashionable to wear those little bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? And one of the lecturers I had at Ridley College said, I know what Jesus would do, he'd die. Um, Following Jesus means taking up our cross, a person with a cross on their shoulder, 
was going to their death. Jesus says that these things need to be weighed against eternity because we'll come at the end of our lives to understand the things that we invest in are either for profit or for loss. And, and the things that will only count for eternity are things that are done in, uh, consistent with that idea of following Jesus. So Christians must follow the way of their master. And in the reading that we were about to have uh, from Acts chapter 21, if we hadn't already noticed, Paul was intent on following the Lord Jesus no matter what. So I've called today's talk Doing the Will of God and we're going to work our way through the whole of Acts chapter 21. So follow it along with me, please. We'll read the first uh, 16 verse, the first 14 verses. Paul said his, uh, when he had parted from them, now he was in Miletus when we last saw him near Ephesus, when we had parted from them and set sail, and when we read the word we in here, we've got to remember that means that Luke, the author of this book, is a participant in the events that he's describing here. So this is one of those famous what's called we passages in the book of Acts. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven. In other words, one of the seven uh, people who were chosen to lighten the load of the apostles way back in Acts chapter 6 and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took, the Jew, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So right at this point, storm clouds are gathering. Paul has, uh, of course, encountered much difficulty as he's gone on the mission that Jesus called and commissioned him to do. But now he's approaching Jerusalem and the warning signs are starting to get quite stark. This is going to be a dangerous thing. And now he's been warned twice that this is an idea which has attendant risks and great dangers. But notice the affection with which Paul's held. This is one of the characteristics of Luke's telling of the story. It's something you can't help noticing when you read Paul's letters. He was a person who had a gift for making friends and other people loved him. He would have been a difficult man to keep up with, I think, but uh, he attracted people who, who clearly loved him. We saw that in the way that he was farewelled uh, from the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. 
And now we find uh, people again meeting on the beach and praying with him and shedding tears as he leaves. So Paul sets his face for Jerusalem, is what we could call this first section. Uh, He started this part of the journey from Miletus, which was the port not too far from Ephesus. Uh, He went down by way of Cos and then past the island of Rhodes to Patara. Then he went to Tyre, then on to Ptolemy, to Caesarea, and eventually he wound up in Jerusalem, which was his intention all along. He spent seven days in Tyre, and we read there that through the Spirit, the people from Tyre, the Tyrians, were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Nothing more said about that, but it was a, a word from the Holy Spirit that prompted them to say that. But then when he gets to Caesarea, a prophet who we've already read about early on in the book of Acts, Agabus, comes to him and takes Paul's belt and ties himself up with it and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now Paul was confronted then by this sorrowful scene of people weeping and crying and saying, don't do it, don't go Paul. When we heard this, says Luke in verse 12, we and the people there urged him not to go. So Luke was included in it. Probably Timothy was there. Uh, We've also got uh, news that Philip the Evangelist was around. So there's some heavy hitters from the uh, the early Christian scene who were all pleading with with Paul and saying, the Holy Spirit's spoken, Paul, don't do it. They might have been saying, you've got great work that you could do here to go down to Jerusalem exposes you to great risk and great danger. But Paul says, why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? And he pronounces himself ready to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. So determined is he to go there? Well, did Paul make a mistake in not heeding the advice of these people? Was he a sinner for not listening to the the warnings of the Holy Spirit? Now, some people say, yes, he did make a mistake because we know how the story ends up. It ends up with Paul being arrested in Jerusalem and eventually taken to Rome where he's executed. But did Paul make a mistake? Was he a bad example at this point in failing to heed what the Holy Spirit had said? Well, there's a lesson that we can learn from this. New Testament prophecy is of a different order to Old Testament prophecy. If Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of those said something, if they said, thus says the Lord, then that was a word that was from Yahweh that had to be obeyed. Agabus the prophet wasn't operating at the same level as those things and in fact the Holy Spirit didn't say to Paul don't go what the Holy Spirit told each of these people in Tyre and then Agabus was that when he went to Jerusalem it was not going to be easy there were going to be things that would happen there that that were going to put his life in great danger the people who received that prophetic word then interpreted it as a warning to Paul don't go but Paul knew differently and Paul thought differently. But the principle of New Testament prophecy, and we read this in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, and also in 1 John, uh, New Testament prophecies have to be tested. They have to be weighed. And so three times, as we look back at it now, we can see that the Holy Spirit has warned Paul of the dangers that faced him in going to Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 20, when he's farewelling the Ephesian elders. We've seen it here in chapter 21, verse 4 and verses 10 to 14. So three times the Holy Spirit says, when you get to Jerusalem, it will be difficult. I think that this is meant to be a deliberate parallel between the three warnings, the three intimations that Jesus gave to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem 
and you read them in Luke chapter 9 uh, twice and then Luke chapter 18 three times. He tells his disciples and Matthew and Mark recorded as well that he, when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, he'll be flogged, he'll be beaten, he'll be crucified, but three days later he'll be raised from the dead. I think that this three-part warning for Paul of the dangers in Jerusalem is meant to mirror the three warnings that Jesus gave his, the three foretellings that Jesus gave his followers. Now we read in Luke chapter 9 and remember that Luke and Acts are, are parallel volumes. Uh, the book of Luke that we call the, the gospel, that's, that's volume 1. The second volume is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. But in Luke chapter 9, the story takes a turn because at Luke chapter 9 verse 51 we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now setting your face is what Ezekiel the prophet did, what Isaiah the prophet did. It means to be so determined that nothing will stop you. Now we don't read those exact words about Paul, but we read that we realise that he's doing something very similar. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Later on in chapter 13 of Luke, Jesus calls Jerusalem the city that kills prophets. So it's no easy place to be. It costs Jesus his life and it's going to work out exactly that way for Paul. But in Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul resolved in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. So he's paralleling the same determination that Jesus had. It's not saying that Paul's divine like Jesus was, not at all. But he's a true servant of the master doing what the master did. Um, Fanny Crosby wrote a wonderful hymn, To the Work. It says, To the work, to the work, we are servants of God. Let us follow the path that our master has trod. And that's what Paul's doing. Now in Acts chapter 9, uh, we read that Paul was on his way, or Saul was his name at that time, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the new Christian movement. But on his way, he was blinded by a vision from heaven and uh, he was taken into Damascus where he was ministered to by uh, Ananias, a person who Jesus had appeared to and spoken to and said, go and talk to Saul. And Jesus said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was Paul's commissioning. He knew from the beginning of the work that Jesus called him to do that he was going to speak to the great and the lesser. He was going to go to Israel. He was going to go to the Gentiles. And his ministry for the sake of the Lord Jesus was going to involve much suffering. He knew that the trip to Jerusalem was a part of that plan. And so in Acts chapter 20, farewelling the Ephesian elders again, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's determination and no one was going to prevent him finishing his course to which he'd been called. So so it's quite clear that Paul is intent on following the way of the master as had been predicted and as he believed he'd been called to do and he was going to follow the way of the master even at great risk to himself. He's a man of unshakable determination. Even the, the pleas of his friends aren't enough to stop him doing what Jesus has called him to do. And so verse 14 tells us that since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. 
and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Notice how we've been introduced to a number of people who were very early uh, Christians, people who'd been around the scene for a long time. This is interesting from another point of view too. Uh, Luke, when he wrote his gospel in the book of Acts, claims to have researched everything very carefully. So it's quite likely that he interviewed Nason, he interviewed Philip, he interviewed Agabus. He would have met with these people and asked them for their account of what it was like to be a Christian in the early days. Uh, And any recollections that that others had of being there when Jesus did what he did. This is a a sign that, uh, that Luke, the evangelist, was a very careful historian as well. So we move on to verse 17, uh, which this this section I've called Loving God and Living for Others. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk walking according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will hurt, certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So at verse 17, Paul's been received gladly by the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, including James, the brother of Jesus, who was evidently the leader of the uh, the, the Christian community in Jerusalem at that time. They've uh, received the report that he gave of all the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So it's the work of God and Paul was the servant of God to do that work on his behalf. And they gave glory to God. They were delighted to hear that not just Jews but Gentiles in great numbers had responded to the gospel and had become uh, followers of the Lord Jesus. But there's a problem. And the problem was that rumours had been circulated that Paul in his ministry was encouraging Jews to abandon the customs of their faith such as circumcision and so on. Now this was false. Paul had done no such thing. He had taught that the Jewish law was irrelevant for Gentiles, but he'd never ever, there's no evidence of any attempt of him to try to persuade Jews to draw away from the customs that they'd been raised with. He told Gentiles that they didn't need to become Jews, but he never stopped Jews from living as as Jews either. I think it was inevitable that eventually Jewish customs would just disappear because once people had discovered the the wonder and the joy and the beauty of the freedom that the gospel brings and realise that you can't add anything to what Jesus has done for you, you can just rejoice in it and live obedient from the heart, which is what Paul talks about in Romans, 
I think it was inevitable that those Jewish customs would give way. But Paul never commanded people to live that way. He just said to Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews. But anyway, that had been twisted and it gives a pretty good indication that for as long as there's been people, rumours can spread and false rumours are very dangerous to counter. Now this is a real risk to the Christian community who must have been still a very small minority in Jerusalem and if word had got around it, it really did pose a threat to them. So what's the solution? The solution that's proposed by the believers in Jerusalem is that Paul needs to give witness, he needs to demonstrate the fact that he's still an Orthodox Jew in many respects. And so we're told in verse 23 that there were four Christian men who were currently observing what's called the Nazarite vow. If you want to know about the Nazarite vow, you need to go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, and and you read more about uh, sacrifices and so on in Numbers 19. But the Nazarite vow was an expression of gratitude for God for blessing people in some way or it was a plea with God to bless them in the future and so they they show uh, by acts of self-denial that that they are either giving thanks or or asking for God's blessing. And so the self-denial that was practised was that they abstained from meat and from wine for 30 days. They did not cut their hair throughout that entire period. So think of Samson. Samson in the book of Judges was probably taking a Nazarite vow. It seems that in the last seven days, there's a reference to seven days in here, in the last seven days of the Nazarite vow, uh, the people who'd made that vow would, would not leave the temple precinct. They would stay there for that entire time. And finally, at the completion of the 30-day period, uh, various offerings would be made, a lamb and a ram, there'd be bread and cakes and wine, all of those things that were costly. And as well as that, on the last day of the vow, when those sacrifices were offered, were offered, their heads would be shaved and the hair that had grown for that period of 30 days would be sacrificed, would be burnt with the animal sacrifices as well on the altar. Now, clearly, that's a costly thing to do. To do this would have meant that for 30 days they could do no paid work and then they had to invest in these sacrifices, which would have been costly. So if a person was too poor to afford the Nazarite vow but really believed sincerely they needed to do it, it was considered really good form for a wealthier Jew to pay for them. And so that's what the uh, disciples in Jerusalem are saying to Paul. You demonstrate the extent of your obedience to the old way by paying for these four Christians to complete their Nazarite vow. It It was considered to be an act of great piety. Now remember that Paul has already by this time written some of his letters, particularly Galatians, uh, where he's told them that, 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 that the law is obsolete, it's fading away. Uh, he's already written those things, he already knows these things. What he's doing here is giving up the freedom that he knows that he enjoys because of the gospel of the free grace of Jesus, where God forgives us out of his great generosity when we put our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we can't earn it, we can't do enough good works to deserve it. And Paul knows all that, and yet he voluntarily sacrifices his freedom for the good of the gospel and for the progress of the kingdom. So he gave up his privileges for others and for the kingdom. And that's a demonstration of what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Paul's doing it. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That's the Christian approach in view of all that Jesus has done for us. We need to look for what we can do for him and for others. So Paul's a man of great conviction, uh, but look where the convictions lead him in verses 27 to 36. When the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven last days of the Nazarite vow, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. So by doing what Paul had done, he brought real trouble on himself. His convictions have led to a situation where his, his life is literally at risk. Now Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem for Passover, uh, in, in, for, for Pentecost. Uh, he, he'd announced that previously. We see that in chapter 20, verse 16. But lots of other people wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost as well, including these Jews from the region of Asia, where Ephesus was. Now, Trophimus was from, from Ephesus. He was an Ephesian. Now, Paul would have spent plenty of time in and around the temple precinct with these four men who'd made the Nazarite vow. So, in other words, he was a bit of a sitting target for these people who spread the rumour about him. They put two and two together and noticing that Trophimus the Ephesian was with them, they probably knew him from back in the province of Asia. They concluded that Paul had probably taken him against the law, against the temple instructions, into the precincts that were only for pious Jews. Now we need to understand something about the temple at this point. Uh, the temple mount was a, a massive great area. We've seen that previously at times. But the temple was built by Herod the Great there was an area of the temple that obviously only priests could go into, but Jewish men were allowed in the temple courts. And beyond that, there was a section that was known as the Court of the Women, where Jewish women were entitled to go. There was a fence around an outer area again where non-purified Jews were allowed to stand. But there was a fence that separated that from what became known as the Court of the Gentiles. It was in the Court of the Gentiles that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, beyond that fence... Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could not go and that was on the pain of death. Now, in not, not too many years ago, uh, a, a stone tablet, which was a part of that wall, was, was excavated and discovered and we see the Greek inscription on there, which is known to us from ancient literature. 
and written, carved there in, in the Greek language so that everybody could read it on that wall separating the Gentiles area from the, the Jewish area were these words, no foreigner may enter within this balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he be put blame for the death which will ensue. This was so serious that Herod, who was not a Jew, could not go beyond that fence. The Jews weren't really supposed to execute people, but the Romans turned a blind eye to it if ever they executed people for going beyond this enclosure, beyond this, uh, this barrier. So that was how seriously it was taken. And so to, to charge that Paul had broken the law by taking Trophimus into a Jewish area was, was a, a, a capital crime. It was something that Paul would have been punished with death for, except that it wasn't true. But rumours don't stop mobs, do they? And so the mob formed. And, and they looked to, to beat Paul up, to tear him limb from limb. But then the Romans got wind of it, and, they, and we, we read that the tribune came down, the leader of the Roman cohort. Now at the Feast of Pentecost, the, there would have been at least a 1,000 Roman soldiers in Jerusalem because there was a huge population influx and sometimes uh, the people got a bit heated. And so there was a large military presence there. To have a riot was a disgrace to the people and it was also a threat to the military leader there because if he couldn't quell the riot, that would call into question whether he was fit to have his place in the Roman military. So the Roman legion uh, put a stop to this very, very quickly. And he realised, not being able to understand what was going on, that Paul was the centre of attention and so he arrested him uh, for his own protection because he wasn't able to establish what it was that Paul had done. Now, can you see any parallels to things that we've already read of in Luke's two-part series so far? Verse 32 tells us the reason that the Roman tribune couldn't hear anything was because some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. That's exactly the terminology that Luke used when he described the, the riot in the theatre at Ephesus. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. When Paul's preaching uh, proved a threat to those who made the statues of Diana or Artemis, the, uh, the, the goddess of Ephesus, there was this massive riot. And it was chaotic, just like it was in Jerusalem. I think Luke wants us to parallel the two situations. So there's an irony here. Luke's saying that these people are behaving as lawlessly and as abominably before God as pagans who were jealous for their goddess these Jews are jealous for their law, but they're actually taking apart the servant of God, the person who is doing God's will because of their faulty understanding of the law, the law that's now been abolished since Jesus kept it and has fulfilled it all completely. So God's servant is saved by, a pagan, by pagan law, by the Roman soldiers, when those who are zealous for God's law behave in a way that's just as lawless as the Ephesians, the, the pagans in Ephesus. But there's another sense in which this is very similar to something else from Luke's writings. In verse 36, we're told that the crowd yelled out, away with him. That's pretty much what they said about Jesus. When Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out before the crowd, they said, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. I think Luke wants us to, to draw those two parallels and to see that this mob is, uh, is forming in, in, in a very unhealthy, unwholesome and dangerous way which parallels what went on in Ephesus and parallels went on what went on 
when the Jewish people rejected Jesus. So where does this leave us? Well, we talked before about conviction, what drives us. We can see what drove Paul. What drove Paul was the idea that he had to take up his cross. Jesus says, do it every day. Paul, it was acknowledged that he didn't listen to the the words that were spoken in, in the spirit because he was intent on doing God's will, the will of God that had been revealed to him already. And so Paul, in some of his letters, reflects on these sorts of ideas. He'd already written some of these things by the time that it happened. Uh, So Romans 14 verse 8 says, If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Life, death, whatever. More important than either is that you obey God's will, says Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, I die every day. That's exactly what Jesus called us to do. So Paul, going to Jerusalem was was an act of obedience. It was an act of obedience to the will that God had revealed to him and he wouldn't be deterred from it. Now just in finishing, um, a very famous Christian missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, when a book was written about him, it was called It Is Not Death to Die. There's a fate worse than death. But just this past week I received an email from a Christian publisher telling me about a new book called We Died Before We Came Here, which is the recollections of a lady called Emily Foreman she and her husband left America and went to Africa uh, where her husband was murdered by uh, a, 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 a band of Muslim militants, leaving her a widow with four young children. Uh, she wrote this book, which I haven't read, but I was really struck by the title, we, came, we Died Before We Came Here. There are Christians today who are prepared to pay with their lives for the sake of obeying Jesus. Now, that has really challenged me. What have I ever done? in obeying Jesus that's caused a risk to me? Have I really taken up my cross and laid down my life for him? But the challenge pertains to us all because that's what this story is about. We see Paul determined to fulfil the call of Jesus on his life to take the gospel wherever he could at whatever level of risk it was. And so the challenge for us as we consider these things is let the will of the Lord be done. What's God's will for us? And are we prepared to pursue it, no matter what, to whatever extent, and even if it poses real danger to us? There's a challenge. Let's pray. Uh, Loving Father, we we thank you for these words. Uh, They're challenging. they're, They're provocative. We pray that you would help us to be people that take... uh, our faith in the Lord Jesus so seriously that we would heed his word to take up our cross each day. We pray that you would help us to be those who die to ourselves and to seek first the kingdom of God. We pray that you would enable us as a church to be a place, a, a family of people, a group of people who puts a very high priority on doing your will. And so we ask that you would shape us and form us and use these things to cause us to reassess our priorities and to make sure that they really do align with the values of the kingdom so that we're people of great commitment, doing the will of God from the heart. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.